Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Alex Guerrero, who is a philosophy professor at Rutgers. He writes in moral and political philosophy, and today we're going to talk about a project that he's been working on for the past several years on uh, a system of governance that's sometimes referred to as lotocracy. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Happy to be here. So last season on the podcast, we had uh, Jed Purdy, who's a law professor at Duke, um, as a guest. And we talked for a few minutes about litocracy. Um, He's not a a very big fan of the idea, and I'm not um, really an expert on it, of course. So I thought the two of us um, might do a deeper dive on the subject, maybe especially as it relates to environmental policy. So, you know, just to get us situated... Uh, for folks who aren't familiar with with the idea, what's the what's the thumbnail description of the the project that you've been working on, and and maybe lithography more generally? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I, I guess there's really two big parts. Uh, the first part is trying to offer a diagnosis of uh, some kind of what I think of as deep problems with electoral representative systems of government, particularly operating uh, under modern political conditions, kind of massive size and scale, uh, real worries about kind of voter ignorance and the ability to hold elected officials meaningfully accountable, uh, worries about a kind of tainted uh, epistemic environment uh, regarding information and the news and misinformation, um, and sort of thinking about how if we take seriously that elections are at the center of some of our significant problems, Uh, things regarding partisanship and kind of uh, polarization, worries about short-term bias, worries about uh, sort of unrepresentative representatives coming to have power. Uh, If we're worried about elections, well, where do we go next? And so the project is really trying to think about the use of random selection to choose our political representatives. So this is an idea that goes all the way back to Athens, but has never really been tried at scale. And so I've got a book coming out next year that really tries to build enough system around the use of random selection so that we might actually get something like an attractive political system, um, but that uses randomly selected political representatives rather than elected ones. And so, you know, in in the book and in my work, I try to go through uh, what all you would need uh, to sort of support that kind of institution. And so one of the big things that I focus on is this idea of rather than having a generalist legislature like Congress uh, that covers lots of different topical areas, instead considering the idea of having single issue legislative bodies that focus on like a particular policy area. So agriculture, immigration, healthcare, education, energy policy. Um, and having those single issue bodies be composed of people who've been randomly selected from the political community and having as a kind of central element uh, the use of learning phases where members of these single issue legislatures hear from experts and advocates and stakeholders on the topic and develop the agenda and come up with policy ideas in light of what they encounter. I also try to build in substantial elements of community consultation and community engagement 
And then the idea would have these randomly selected citizens in these single issue legislatures be able to directly enact policy. Um, lots of questions about the details of how the single issue legislatures work with each other to create kind of coherent policy. Uh, lots of questions about whether individual randomly chosen people will be up to the task mm -hmm. of making good policy. And, you know, lots of questions about um, the role of experts and bringing people in to speak to these uh, randomly chosen citizens and the influence that they might have. And so I try to go through lots of that in the book. But uh, yeah, I look forward to kind of talking more about that with you today. Yeah, great. So, so maybe we could start with the with the diagnosis. Is like a big chunk of the of the book project um, is oriented towards kind of diagnosing uh, failures in in electoral systems, or you know, especially kind of with the big case study being being the U.S. contemporary political situation. And of course, the the proposal to move away from elections is pretty radical. Um, so, in some ways, you know the. the it makes sense that the case has to start with, you know, why the system's so so broken. So, what do you what do you see as like the the major limitations or liabilities of elections as a way of selecting, you know, let's say like political decision makers? That's what we're talking about, right? It's like we have presidential elections, we have legislative elections, um, we have judicial elections in some states, um, in some contexts. Um, there's elections at local levels, right? Uh, the dog catchers are elected, right? In some places, <laughs> elections are kind of built into the American system of governance at every level. Um, so it's a big change. And so what are, what are the problems? And I guess part of the part of the story of the book is that you see these as, as kind of inherent to um, uh, to to the notion of elector elections and the electoral process, not kind of. Um, something that we could easily fix through campaign finance reform or some other um, less radical change of our political system. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, and I think uh, I got interested in using lotteries by being in law school and working with, uh, you know, faculty and talking to faculty who are working on election reform and campaign finance reform and basically feeling like a lot of those paths were really treacherous and hard to address the kind of fundamental issues. So um, I see there being sort of four big kind of fundamental problems. And I think they all go to, yeah, uh, something like intrinsic or inherent features of electoral representative systems. So they're not things that are easy to fix through redesign, uh, although we could make things better in various ways. And of course, we should do that in the in the short term, at least. Um, so the four big things I see, one is really a breakdown in the mechanism of electoral accountability. So elections set up a principal agent problem. Uh, you know, we, the principals are trying to pick somebody who's going to act on our behalf, uh, our agent, the elected official. Uh, the way we're supposed to have this work is by kind of knowing enough about what they're doing so that if they are doing a bad job or looking out just for special interests and ignoring our interests, we can vote them out of office. Uh, a big central problem that many people have talked about, uh, Ilya Soman and Jason Brennan and Brian Kaplan and many others, is that ordinary voters don't know very much about what uh, is going on with politics um, most people can't answer very basic questions about the political system, and they certainly can't answer more detailed questions about what their representatives are actually doing with their time in office, what they're trying to do, what 
you know, legislation they're supporting, what legislation would be good. Um, and so there's a kind of fundamental worry that if we don't know enough, we're just kind of uh, blindly lashing out in various ways through elections and cycling through people, none of whom maybe are going to actually address the real problems that we face, uh, where it's very easy for us to be manipulated in various ways, very easy for the press to kind of have a huge influence in shaping our views about what are the serious problems. Uh, so, and I think this isn't an easy problem to solve, this fundamental issue of uh, the breakdown of meaningful electoral accountability. Uh, we can try to give people more information, but on some fundamental level, they don't have time. It's not in their interest to spend a ton of time getting good information. Uh, people are motivated by kind of entertainment to follow politics and spend time on it, but not so much kind of as if they were making a, the serious decisions they are. Um, it's hard to supply good information from uh, something like a non-market system because uh, we worry then about it being insufficiently critical of the government if the government's funding it. Uh, so anyway, I think there's deep problems there. Uh, a second big source of problems, I think, at least in a system like the United States where you get two dominant political parties, uh, partly as the result of the design of the electoral system. So Duverger's law... Uh, you know, in political science suggests with uh, single member districts chosen by plurality vote rules, you're going to get two dominant political parties. Combine that with uh, what social psychologists call social identity theory, which suggests we're very easily primed to in-group and out-group thinking. Uh, and I think over time, uh, we're going to get a lot of social segmentation uh, leading to um, kind of extreme polarization. So we get a kind of vicious partisanship where we're in in-groups and out-groups and we fight with each other, but we don't actually work well together through political institutions to solve our problems. Uh, various um, modern things have made this worse. Uh, so we increasingly have different epistemic worlds that we occupy, where we're in our own sort of epistemic bubbles or echo chambers, uh, only encountering views and people who are sort of on our side, or only encountering the worst views on the other side. Um, all of that sort of creates this kind of um, impossible situation of not really being able to work with people. And it means that through elections, what we get is kind of dominating some other group of people every two or four years. We hope our side wins, so we get to be in the dominant position, um, but it's not a kind of stable, um, broad uh, political coalition. And I think elections really are at the center of that. So that's a second problem. A third problem, uh, just the short-term bias you get from elections. So elected officials have every incentive to uh, stress you know, what's gonna be uh, to the significant benefit of people in the short term and to discount or disregard uh, anything that might have a longer time horizon. So if they can't get credit for addressing it in the next two or four years, if it seems to make their, you know, people's lives worse in the short term, so implementing a gas tax or anything like that, uh, elected officials aren't going to be well positioned to do that. Uh, and then a final worry is just the way in which people get elected. Uh, we end up having a really unrepresentative group of people in power. So they overwhelmingly are white and male and wealthy. Uh, they come from a small number of selective educational institutions. Uh, in many cases, they have backgrounds as lawyers or in business. 
we get very few people who occupy um, more marginalized social positions. And, you know, this is all old news in a way. Aristotle says, you know, if you want an oligarchy, you go to elections. Mm. If you want democracy, use uh, lottery selection. Um, and I think having unrepresentatives, unrepresentative representatives results in all kinds of distortion in our system. So we don't focus on certain political problems and we focus too much on others. And I think in general, there's um, worries about capture by special interests. And so I think those four issues, none of them are easy to solve. Um, and I think elections are kind of at the heart of you know, all of them. So yeah, so this is like, you know, it's a, a serious indictment against, against the system and all of those things, it's almost like impossible to argue against um, that, the, you know, these problems exist. Um, you know, at, th at this point in the, in the conversation, you know, I think some folks will be inclined to say, you know, wh what you refer to in the, in the, in the, in the book as, uh, as the Churchillian shrug, right? Which is the, you know, the famous quote, um, Winston Churchill, democracy is a terrible system, more or less to paraphrase, democracy is a terrible system, but it's better than all the other ones we've tried. And, and, you know, you grapple with this a little bit because, you know, in a sense, it, it is a little, it's defeatist and, and not, you know, it's kind of unattractive in certain respects. But on the other hand, you know, you know, liberal dem democratic societies like we have, you know, like, things are relatively good for a lot of people, especially in historical context. Now, you know, there's a huge amount of inequality in, you know, say, U.S. society. Um, but even folks who are at the lower end of material welfare in the, in the states are still doing better than a lot of folks elsewhere in the world who live under alternative systems. Um, you know, maybe we could think of liberal democracy as a, as a fragile thing that it might be dangerous to tamper with. I think that's part of Churchill's observation, you know, as you note, um, you know, there have been alternatives presented to, to the liberal democracies, market-based liberal democracies. And those in the 20th centuries, those didn't go 20th century that those didn't go all that well. So, um, you know, it might be possible for us to imagine something better, but imagination is a tricky thing. We can, we can also imagine, you know, traveling faster than the speed of light <laughs> and, you know, that's not going to happen. So, um, we could be kind of hallucinating or, you know, um, it's difficult to really fully understand what the consequences of a system are until you implement it. So, so, you know, nevertheless, you think this is, is a project that's worth pursuing. So how, what's the general response to that, that, you know, uh, you could call it a kind of conservatism, um, but this basic idea that, you know, when you look at the long scope of history and you look at alternatives that have been tried to the current system that we have um, and that other, you know, kind of advanced economies have, uh, many of them in, in, in the world these days, the alternatives just don't look all that good, even given the shortcomings of, of our system. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a, a very sensible wariness that motivates the kind of Churchillian shrug. Uh, especially looking at the 20th century, where a lot of bold political experiments ended up looking horrifying, I mean, in terms of the actual uh, results. And I think part of that is those ideas often weren't very well thought out. Uh, they often were brought into existence by people who had been completely uh, taken by some idea and were sort of unconcerned to continue evaluating that idea over time. So in the final chapter of the book, I talk about um, kind of the ethics and epistemic uh, responsibility of revolution. So how do we move from where we are to something else? 
in a sort of appropriate way, both ethically and epistemically. And I think for me, a big part of that is going to be incrementalism, experimentalism, trying out things at a very small scale, seeing what works and what doesn't, and then thinking about what are going to be some of the, the worries about the external validity of these experiments as we imagine scaling up, uh, but always needing to have in place lots of uh, kind of you know thought and uh, reflection on what's what are we doing? What's working well? What are some of the problems we're noticing? And um, I in the book contemplate making this change at the level of the U.S. Congress. That's an absurd place to start, right? Like, of course, we should try out these kinds of institutions at smaller scale. You know, at municipal and county and maybe state level governments. Um, see how that you know see how they work. See what people are comfortable with. And that's already happening all around the world. So citizens' assemblies have been used to address all kinds of issues all over the world, um, in some places very centrally, in others just as a kind of peripheral thing on the side of other legislative action. Um, I have some issues with some of the details of those, uh, how they've been set up and run, uh, but they're great as a way of seeing what's possible. And I think my basic idea is that, look, uh, political systems are a kind of technology. Over time, you know, people have invented new and different ways of, you know, creating political institutions, organizing uh, political life. Um, none of it's magical. I think, like other kinds of technology, we might think about well, what what are some of its limitations? What are conditions in which the technology doesn't work very well? A car might be great when. Uh, you're on land and driving around, but then, you know, the, the water uh, rises and you're underwater and you got to get out of the car and figure out something new. And I think uh, that's sort of where we are with electoral representative democracy. I think it's obviously a massive improvement over other systems that have been in place. Um, and there's been a lot of refinement in it over time, right? Like moving from uh, single-member districts to proportional representation systems, uh, introducing constitutional limitations, adding in administrative agencies to supplement the work of uh, legislative officials. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, kind of behind-the-scenes change in electoral representative democracy. And so in some ways, what I'm suggesting is just let's continue to be open in that way and think about uh, alternatives to elections that still meet uh, the very important requirements of democracy. So one of the things I argue in the book is that uh, some of the experiments that have been tried weren't even uh, pretending to satisfy kind of basic norms of political morality. Uh, I think that often will lead to disaster. And so I try to you know make the case in the book that we can design lotocratic systems that really would do well by ideas of political equality, participation, self-government, accountability, respect for individual rights, political legitimacy. Uh, so we needn't see ourselves as giving up on those values. We can just think more creatively about how we're institutionalizing them. Hmm. Um, so this is a, I mean, it's two, two questions I kind of have just following up directly on, on, on that. Um, what you were just saying. So, so one is, I was curious if there are um, uh, kind of the state of the of play with respect to what's been tried in other places. I mean, what I take it is that it hasn't really been implemented in a way that um, certainly in the fulsome way that you describe in the book, but also just more generally, you know, maybe maybe the state of experimentation is such that we haven't been able to learn much. But I would be curious 
curious your thoughts on that. And then the other question, I don't know if it's really fully related, but it's kind of, again, following up on the, the car and the, the car and uh, water um, uh, hypo, right? Where the idea is that we had something that worked and conditions have changed. You know, so is it the case that you think that um, that's just the situation in the USA historically that, you know, electoral democracy, an electoral system, let's say, was kind of appropriate at a different historical time and that things have changed? Or, you know, if the founders had decided that, you know, the selection through some kind of lottery would have been was a good idea that, you know, that would have potentially worked at that time as well. Yeah, great. I mean, um, in terms of what's been tried, I would say uh, there have now been quite a few examples um, where people have been chosen at random from the political community, brought together, they hear about some issue, and then they come up with some recommendation. Um, Usually those recommendations have then just been kind of written up in a report and handed over to elected officials, a legislature, And it's sort of a way of informing their decision-making. In a few cases, they've been given more power where they can create a proposal that's then put on a ballot as a kind of referendum measure and then has to be sort of supported by the broader political community through a vote. Um, You know, in both those cases, uh, there's still kind of, I think, uh, there's been some sort of limitation in their power in terms of what they can do directly. Uh, but, you know, I think they're useful to see how does getting random people together in a room to talk about a political issue, to learn about a political issue, um, sort of change the views of those people over time. So some of the most powerful experiments, I think, have been uh, the ones looking at constitutional reform, say, in Ireland, uh, looking at abortion and same-sex marriage and, like, hard issues that the political community is really struggling with and bringing people together uh, who really represent the full range of views of the political community and having them talk to each other for an extended period of time. And I think it really did change people's views. There's a lot of excellent reporting uh, on some of those experiments and you know, hearing from people and the way in which it really did affect them. And you get people like uh, Jim Fishkin at Stanford uh, who've been doing work on kind of deliberative polling and thinking about how um, the results of these uh, kind of deliberative, randomly chosen experiments can then be made made better known to the whole political community and maybe affect how people think about an issue or how they vote. Um, I still worry for the you know four reasons I set out that if we still have elections somewhere, it's gonna we're gonna have a lot of the same problems. It'll be hard for these institutions to serve uh, as information supplements to the process in the right way. It's pretty easy to disregard them, so they've had various ones having to do with climate change that have made pretty strong recommendations that then just get ignored by the elected officials. And so I think that those uh, are significant limitations. Um, but, you know, you look around the world, you see things happening in, in Belgium and France and Iceland and Ireland and Mongolia and South Korea. You know, you see all kinds of interesting developments. And I think that's, you know, great. That's the way, way forward, um, you know, to thinking about these institutions. Uh, as to the question of like, what would the founders have thought? So <laughs> I guess there were, there was some discussion of this, like very, you know, uh, fringy kind of discussion of using random selection at various places. Um, I think even then there might have been some merit to the idea. Uh, but I also think they become, 
uh, lottery selection becomes more attractive as we start to worry about elections uh, at, as size and scale increase. So I think elections work really well and voting procedures in general when we expect the members of the community to kind of know the issues, to know each other, to be able to really observe what the elected official ends up doing. Um, it becomes much harder as we scale up and become huge political territories and communities. And also, um, as we start to see a lot of our decisions within a political community are affected by uh, global issues, kind of global interconnection. Um, and once that becomes maybe the most significant thing that we're encountering, it's just much harder for people to become well-informed about all the issues and about what's actually being done. Uh, you know, and people like Walter Lippmann were worried about this in the 1920s with the advent of, you know, radio and, uh, you know, air, air travel and uh, kind of interconnection in geopolitical realms. And I think you know, none of, there's been no real solution to this fundamental problem with electoral representative democracy. It's just we've kind of carried on as best we can. And I think, uh, you know, it does pretty well by a lot of measures. Um, the suggestion that I try to make is we, we could do a lot better still. And I think the big issues we're still doing quite poorly with uh, affect those who are really unrepresented at the legislative level. Um, people, you know, working as single parents or in several jobs, kind of, I think people in working class conditions in general, their problems are not well addressed. Uh, we have a lot of rhetoric around making things better, but we don't actually take concrete steps. Um, similarly with environmental issues, I think uh, failure to address climate change can be put pretty directly at the door of electoral politics. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, more to say about that, certainly. Right. Yeah. And I would agree. I mean, I think that, you know, as you noted, the, there's this kind of long term, short term issue with with electoral democracy that does seem just extremely um, difficult to um, to get around. So so there's this. Uh, you know, just to look at me, one more uh, piece of the puzzle on the on the table, and then you know, I think we could probably you know start to think you know kind of meander around a little bit. But just in terms of the the, the in the in your your proposal, there's kind of some specific features of how you envision this um, uh, type of governance working, right? Um, so, for example, and that they're probably uh, relevant for thinking about environmental issues, for example. So, you know, you, as you mentioned earlier, you have these single issue le legislatures. So it's unlike uh, the U.S. Congress, which is a generalist legislature, you would, you would focus in kind of maybe mapping the committee structure of Congress, right? So you would have a bunch of legislatures that would operate like these committees. They'd be selected through lottery. Um, you you go to some um, lengths to to think about you know like how regular folks are going to get up to speed and and of course in environmental issues um, and in many social other social issues there's just an enormous amount of um, complexity uh, scientific complexity engineering complexity economic complexity that goes into the successful management of these issues and so um, you do think uh, about that um, you know uh, through you know how consultation would work. There's going to be a learning phase. Um, and then you also have, um, you know, important features of the system that you describe are there would be special assemblies that would what you call structural assemblies that would part of what they would do is, you know, deal with the issue allocation issue. Because, of course, you know, again, just to take the environmental context, 
Um, environmental issues often overlap with other issues. Um, energy and environment are obviously very closely entangled, so it can be a little difficult to figure out how to draw jurisdictional boundaries. And then the other one, which I'm particularly interested in, is this notion of executive assemblies. Because in your system that you're describing, we're doing away with elections in general, right? So it's not just um, the legislature. Also, there would be, I take it, no presidents under your system or even prime ministers. Um, and so, um, so the whole question of executive oversight comes up. And so um, I guess I just... Um, well, maybe just turn it back to you. Did I characterize the structural features accurately? And, and what do you, you know, what do you, maybe just thinking about regulating in a domain like climate change or, or the environment um, or, you know, any other complex area where you have, you know, these days, most of the action is done uh, by administrative agencies. You know, what, what features of the system that you described kind of are most salient for, you know, those issue areas? Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, it's a, a big question. I think the, so let's just focus on, you know, environmental policy or something like that. So there would be a designated uh, single issue body focusing on in the environment. And um, so how would it decide what to do? So first of all, you'd have these people chosen to serve three-year terms. Uh, so 450 people would be the total number, and there'd be 150 new people each year uh, serving, you know, a three-year term. And at the beginning of, you know, the the first term, uh, there'd be a kind of agenda setting phase. And during that agenda setting phase, you'd get advocates and stakeholders and experts of various kinds coming forward and putting up proposals for things that ought to be done. So maybe introducing a certain kind of carbon tax or uh, limiting a certain kind of uh, changing, a certain kind of regulation that governs some very specific issue of water uh, supply. And so some of those would be very micro scale. Some of them would be broader. Um, and the uh, randomly chosen citizens would kind of hear about these different possibilities. Um, and the ones that had already been serving for a year um, would sort of uh, put some of these on the agenda, basically decide, you know, we're going to focus on these three. And then for those three, for each of them, there'd be a learning phase where you'd hear yet more about that particular issue, uh, you know, again, from experts, but also from advocates and stakeholders. Um, now, the, the hard question of like which experts, which advocates, which stakeholders, there's you know, got to be a lot of process there. And I talk about that in a lot of detail, sort of who would count as an expert, who would count as an advocate, how would certain advocates get to speak. Uh, some of that could be through ordinary channels of political participation. So, you know, you get enough signatures or you show enough kind of support for your um, kind of advocacy organization, and that would give you, you know, 15 minutes to speak in front of the group. Uh, for experts, you could have various methods of kind of defining expertise in that domain, coming up with credentials and entering people into a database of experts on that topic, and then having those experts be randomly chosen. Um, so there's, I, I try to talk through a lot of possible uh, structure there, and I think a lot of that would we try out certain things, see how they those work, maybe need to modify them, think about where capture might happen. Um, but so that's all on the kind of then people learn more about the issue um, and there would eventually be a time to come up with proposals. And one of those might be for a large enough scale issue uh, to create um, some kind of administrative agency that would be overseen then by the single issue legislative body 
And so part of the role for the single-issue legislative body would be kind of administrative oversight of a certain kind, um, you know, much as we have with executive and legislative agencies now. Um, and, you know, the lots of options there, but that's kind of the idea. So I think there might be some cases where you have some broad environmental aim, um, but the way to actually carry it out is going to be pretty detailed and not the kind of thing you want you know, legislative officials of any kind trying to work out. Um, and you could keep some of the same uh, administrative agency kind of notice and rulemaking uh, process. But, you know, all of that is sort of up in the air. Uh, I definitely don't want to have uh, an elected ex executive uh, sitting in the background because I think uh, currently elections, particularly around the, the, the president in the United States, really just totally set and dominate the political agenda and really distort the process, create a lot of the hyper-partisanship and focus us away from actual problem solving and just on uh, individual personalities. And so I think a lot of that would, would need to be um, replaced or supplemented in various ways, but I think uh, lo lots of details as to how to do that. Um, in this book, I really focus on the legislative side of things. I have, you know, maybe 10 pages on the executive, but most of it's just to say, here's one, one possible way of disaggregating what's currently being done under the heading of the presidency and thinking about how we might do it using um, kind of randomly selected citizens combined with some appointed officials uh, thinking about you know foreign policy and diplomacy and oversight of the armed forces and judicial appointments and you know oversight of federal uh, federal law and you know all, all kinds of things that we might uh, want to see on the executive side. So yeah, um, yeah, and, great. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, just on the issue of overlap um, and uh, jurisdiction and domain. Yeah, I think it's a uh, to me an exciting challenge to think about moving to single-issue legislative bodies. Uh, the reason for it is I think it really allows focus on particular issues in a way that makes learning about them more manageable. We already see a lot of this with like congressional committees and subcommittees. Um, and I think part of it's just making that structure uh, kind of more transparent and overt. Um, but yeah, there are questions about if there's overlap, if there's... Um, you know, one issue bleeding into another, what do we do? And so I do talk about methods for bringing two different of these single issue legislative bodies together to work on some problem. Uh, over time, maybe we'd want to change the definition of the area. If we always have energy and environment interacting in complex ways, maybe we create one assembly that's dealing with both of them. Um, you, you know, in the limit case, you might recreate the generalist assembly in some way. Um, but I think you wouldn't. I think there's a lot of issues that, you know, there's some overlap, but it's not complete. And there's real reason that we already see a lot of uh, issue specificity within the generalist legislature. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, so I'm, I'm really interested in it's, it's, you know, of course, the executive, just in part, because that's what I that's what I think about administrative law and the environmental context is just really a regulatory domain. So so that was a part of the. Um, it, uh, a part of the um, the project that particularly interested me is just thinking about how to operationalize this in the in this kind of context. And so, um, you know, one one issue that we have, I should just note in the in the U.S. is in part because of the electoral dynamics and the partisanship and polarization, we we probably don't have as much 
I mean, I think it's almost certainly the case that we don't have as much legislation in the environmental domain as would be optimal. It would be much better to have regular um, environmental legislation happening. I and mean, basically the situation in the states is you have the major environmental statutes in the, in the late 60s and through the 70s, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, National Environmental Policy Act. And then um, you have a couple of drips and drabs. The last major legislation is in 1990, Clean Air Act amendments. Um, and then nothing happens until very recently we had the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a very peculiar kind of legislation, which was essentially had almost no regulatory element to it. It was just essentially a big spending measure um, that related to environmental issues. So I think one really interesting potential advantage of a system that you describe is that the legislature could be more productive, um, could actually get more done, and that might be a good thing. But you know, just thinking about the interaction of the administrative state and this kind of legislature, and how would that work? Um, it, so, so partly it's just like, how are the people going to get hired? <laughs> you know, like EPA has you know thousands and thousands of employees. There's regional offices, um, and there's a whole system that we have for that, right? Where um, we have in the in the administrative state more generally, there's several thousand people who turn over um, as political appointees, so presidents and with the Senate presidents, and then for some of the people um, with Senate consultation and approval. You know, you have um, just a very large number of folks who are politically accountable to the president and to a political party. And in those folks turn over with elections. And then you have this, you know, really massive, you know, millions of folks, depending on how you define it, if you include the military in there, certainly huge numbers who are employees of the federal government. And they have some career protection of various levels and sorts and so on. And I think one of the you know, the interesting features of the current system is, you know, there is this chief executive person who stands for elections and they're associated with political parties. And we have this system where um, what I've talked about in this other context, you have these partisan technocrats who are essentially each party has a kind of cadre of experts who know something about an administrative domain, environment, energy, education, labor, whatever. And they spend their time, you know, kind of following these issues, but also working with um, others, kind of members of the political coalition. They kind of know how to operate within their respective political coalitions. There's kind of Democratic folks and Republican folks, and they're they're familiar with the with the regulated actors. They're familiar with the interest groups, and all of this creates the potential for capture, right? But it also creates the the kind of background knowledge that allow them to do their jobs, and so. Um, so yeah, so this is just kind of, you know, but then there's this chief executive at the top and the whole thing failed during the Trump administration because he was so far outside of the norm. But if you kind of go back, um, you know, prior to Trump, you know, you have this system where the two parties kind of alternate. There's norms about how governance is going to work. There's, you know, really substantial amount of expertise that's built up within, you know, a kind of constellation around both political parties. They go in, they manage the administrative state, you know, the way they want, again, within certain boundaries. And then, you know, and then that there's some feedback with elections. And, and so, yeah, so I'm kind of, in, the question is how, what's, how does this system, would it, would it radically look different? Are we talking about a much stripped down administrative state? Um, or is it, you know, if not, what are the, what are the mechanisms of feedback and oversight look like given the vastness of the operation that we're talking about? Yeah, great. I mean, I think, uh, the short answer is it could look very similar with just a different structure at the top. Sort of how is it that the people running agencies, administrators, uh, end up having the power that they do? 
and how are they going to be evaluated and held accountable over time? And I think those things uh, might change significantly, but in ways that, to my mind, would produce more responsive, kind of more uh, outcome, good government-oriented uh, attention, rather than um, what I think of as kind of hyper-partisan action on the part of the the top level. Um, so, okay, so the very first thing you said was that uh, one nice thing about going to the single-issue focus is uh, there's at least the possibility of the legislature getting more done, um, and I think that's right. So rather than having all our attention focused on issues where we're highly divided, as elections encourage us to do, we could in many cases, notice, well, here's a lot of overlap in the broad political community. We all think we should be doing more about this issue. Uh, let's come together and figure out what exactly we ought to do. And so I think there'd be more potential for that. Uh, I think one of the things that might happen is that then people realize, oh, there's kind of a big problem here. We can't handle it in detail, but we do think it needs to be handled. We're going to have an agency that's going to be in charge of this. There'll be people who are running the agency. Uh, we'll need to think about what are the proper aims and outcomes for this agency? What are the metrics that we're going to use to evaluate success or failure of this agency? And you know, the, the single issue legislative body could be responsible for uh, creating and monitoring a lot of those kinds of things um, and would have the power to, say, appoint somebody to head such an agency or appoint you know, a, a committee of people, depending on the details. And then those people would you know, do what we currently see in terms of you know, overseeing and employing a large bureaucracy with a lot of internal structure. And many of those people might you know, be pretty permanent technocrats working in their jobs. Uh, to the extent they weren't actually achieving the outcomes or metrics that the single-issue legislative body were setting out, that would be reasoned for future single-issue legislative bodies to take a step back and say, well, why aren't they? What are the problems? Is it, you know, structure at the head? Is it the details of kind of what they're trying to do? Um, so I think you'd get a lot of, you know, the same kind of outcome focus uh, you get more outcome-focused accountability, and I think you'd get technocrats, but not hyper-partisan ones, right? So they would be taking their marching orders, not from an entirely political, electoral kind of background context, but thinking in a problem-solving way, like for this single-issue legislative topic, what are the big issues that led the randomly chosen citizens to create this agency? What's it supposed to be doing, and is it actually achieving those ends? And so the hope, anyway, would to keep the good technocracy, but have it overseen by, uh, you know, ordinary, genuinely account, uh, sorry, ordinary citizens who aren't captured uh, by special interests and who aren't just looking out for their political careers. And uh, at least on the optimistic <laughs> uh, take, this would work better than what we currently have. Uh, I think it also would allow for more stability of mission over time. So rather than every two or four or six or eight years getting a dramatic reversal in course, uh, you would get people who had been randomly chosen who I think over time, if they were responding to reality and to the actual problem, um, would have some more stability. Um, at least that's also you know, part of the hope that you wouldn't get this kind of radical swings in direction of 
uh, administrative aims um, resulting from you know shifts in you know which fifty one percent won out this time. Right. So I think that that's a big issue in the administrative state these days, right, is that you have this, this problem of oscillation, right? The parties change, they take radically, you know, climate change is a great example. Other administrative areas like uh, internet governance, um, it just basically oscillates back and forth um, with these huge policy reversals, which doesn't seem like an ideal way to make to make policy. Um, you know, just kind of thinking out as you're talking about this, thinking out over the long term, it seems that there is you know, especially with respect to the administrative agencies, certain kinds of risks of, I don't know if capture is the right term, but it, but essentially where the administrative, it would be government, governance, one concern might be governance by administrative, by administrator without a really serious check. So if you imagine these citizen juries, I'm sorry, not citizen juries, the citizen legislatures, um, you know, they have real power, right? So they could they could retract the the the, the 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 mandate for an agency. Presumably this is how the budget's gonna happen. Presumably um, the, um, you know, they could hire and fire. I'm still, it's the, I think the hiring process is interesting to imagine how, how would an EPA administrator be selected? Um, but you can imagine something almost like what happens in the, in the British system where you have like this really, really seriously um, consistent civil service, essentially, that is overseen politically. But then what happens at the, is that the senior leadership of the civil service, especially if you imagine like, how is an EPA administrator gonna be selected? Well, probably the associate administrators are gonna be the candidates, right? Like in the initial years of an agency, it might be that, you know, there's kind of a broad potential search but over time, one would think that it would be kind of an internal bureaucratic civil service would develop. And there's lots of advantages of that expertise and, you know, getting good people who have, you know, you know, obviously you promise people career security in order to attract them and that kind of thing. And what happens is at the high levels, people just kind of become experts at, I don't know if manipulating is the right word. <laughs> that might be the, you know, that sounds kind of nefarious, but working with the, with these let, you know, these legislators. Um, and that's a good thing to a certain ex extent, right? Because that's about responsiveness and so on. But you could also just imagine it's going to be very hard for these people to, to sort, you know, as you deal a lot with in the book, um, sort good information from bad information, know which experts to trust and the like. And there's going to be a tendency, I think a natural tendency to defer to the government, um, in, in a lot of ways, because that, you know, administrative agencies just have enormous amount of expertise, you know, and information at their disposal. Um, but they can be fairly conservative in certain respects. So, yeah, so again, I guess that that's maybe just a, I don't know if that's a further prod back to you, just to think, to to, to hear more about your thoughts on, on, yeah, this interaction of the bureaucracy with the citizen legislatures and concern about the administrators basically really you know, being in a, the administrative state being in a really um, uh, uh, powerful position vis-a-vis -vis these legislatures and, you know, their control over information and, and you know, other, you know, kind of other ways that they're going to be able to protect themselves and their interests um, over the long term. Yeah, no, I think it's, a, you know, it's a very important question that I don't, you know, I don't know how it all will play out. Um, you know, if we could overnight implement these kinds of institutions, uh, there is a real worry that these randomly selected people coming from all different kinds of occupational backgrounds and professional backgrounds 
um, that they might uh, not have some necessary kind of knowledge or expertise to really adequately check the bureaucratic structure. You know, if there's uh, if there are people on that side who've been in these roles for a really long time and they know how to kind of juke the stats to keep their job and um, they can kind of sell the randomly chosen citizens on like, well, we're trying to do this or that, but it's not working out and this is why. And the ordinary citizens won't be able to tell whether that's a adequate explanation for the results or not. Um, so I think definitely there are worries in that vicinity. Uh, the comparative question for me is always the important one. Um, I think what we get with elected officials is we get some of that same stuff, uh, but then also we get elected officials who are just basically captured by special interests and they figure out how to shape the bureaucracy to advance the interests of those uh, individuals rather than the whole political community. And so we get pretty highly captured policy in these areas. And the ordinary voter is then in the position of not being able to tell what's going on or why aren't we doing more? Why is there so much lead in the drinking water still? Um, we're in a hard place to really challenge or police uh, the combined elected official plus bureaucratic structure. Um, so I don't think in the comparative assessment, things are obviously worse for the autocratic body. And one reason to think they might be better is they really could employ some best practices around the initial selection of high-level administrators. So how would we choose the EPA administrator? Well, you know, solicit uh, applications and have some subcommittee that looks at those and looks at the qualifications of people and then eventually have those people kind of bubble up to the top and then they would be chosen based on their uh, you know work experience and competency and maybe having heard from experts and advocates about the various advantages or disadvantages of these particular administrators. And I think there would be a lot more transparency around that process and it might be much harder to see special interests just advancing their favored person. Not not impossible, of course, but I think there'd be more potential uh, checks, you know, like, oh, well, this person worked in this energy industry for 30 years. That's their experience. <laughs> well, what have they done to actually reduce lead levels and, you know, the water? It's like, well, they've never worked on that problem. That's like a thing they're not focused on. It's like, well, that's the thing we want to hire someone to do. So if that's our aim, um, we're not going to want this person. And I think there would be uh, ways of kind of pushing back against capture that are currently quite quite difficult under electoral accountability mechanisms. And so um, anyway, so there's some hope in that direction. Um, and I don't think it would be perfect, but I also think the people that would end up being in the technocratic bureaucracy might be excited to actually get to address the problems and not just work as kind of highly constrained sub-level political operatives. Um, and so if you can get the right kinds of people in those jobs selecting to those occupations because they're excited to work on those problems, um, you know, I think all of that you might get uh, a less politicized uh, but better uh, able to address the actual problem kind of uh, bureaucratic structure. Um, but, you know, again, maybe it all go disastrously <laughs> and like special interests would immediately capture the bureaucracy and the ordinary uh, people would just kind of stare blankly as reports come back and they're sort of, so that could happen. Um, I think 
every political system now has to grapple with this kind of deep issue of we uh, we need highly technical, highly complex regulatory policymaking uh, apparatus. Um, but in a democracy, most of us don't know anything about any of that. So it's very hard to have ordinary people involved in overseeing anything about that at any remove. So there's the like democratic legitimacy kind of worry, uh, but there's also just the, how will we ever come up with a system that won't be just really vulnerable to capture by special interests uh, who know in a lot of detail uh, what ought to be, you know, what they want to happen in these domains. So um, yeah, I see it as a kind of open question whether we could design something that um, works not via electoral accountability, but I take it that is working so poorly in some of these areas that it's at least worth worth considering what might work better. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, in a way, it's, maybe it's not totally fair to to lay this at the you know th this has to be a problem that you you're going to be able to solve. Um, as you said, it's it's really built into the kind of nature of contemporary governance of, of this just really difficult dilemma of expertise and um, kind of bureaucratic, uh, you know, the really the need for these powerful bureaucracies, uh, professionalization and so on, but the real kind of difficult inconsistency of that with certain democratic principles. Yeah. Yeah. You imagine the founders looking at the EPA, right. uh, it's like, you know, what would they say? They would just be like, oh my gosh, what is this thing? Right. <laughs> you know, there's like a million people now working in the, you know, it's like, uh, anyway. So I think those, right. uh, yeah, these these are problems of size and scale and complexity that uh, that's where we are, but it's also hard to envision systems that are going to uh, work very well while also being kind of thoroughgoingly democratic in various ways. Yeah, it's tough. It's a tough one. So, so part of this, I think that, you know, part of the linchpin of this too is is the is the um, the folks in the legislatures, right? The, the selected citizens, I guess, and um, and part of it, I think, different people's attractiveness or how how the the autocracy idea lands with different people, um, maybe partially depends on how they envision those what those people look like. <laughs> and so it sounds to me to a certain extent that, you know, when you think of this group of people, they're, they're fairly thoughtful, they're, um, uh, they're responsible, they are diligent, they want to do their best, they want to do what's right by the country. And they, um, you know, they're, they're kind of reasonable and they're responding to their, you know, the needs and, uh, and kind of circumstances of their lives and their family and their experiences. Um, and then I, for folks who are kind of less uh, attracted to the idea, I think what they envision are a bunch of folks who, you know, there's like whites, you know, uh, segregationists and, you know, QAnon supporters and, uh, you know, people who are more than happy to take a, a check from, you know, the Russian government in order to uh, influence U.S. policy. And then, you know, the occasional reasonable person who's just overwhelmed by uh, others who are, you know, just uninterested, happy to collect a paycheck and then and shirk or um, have, you know, really bonkers ideas and just people who aren't particularly bright, um, who, you know, you know, pound their fists and nevertheless, um, you know, are, you know, uh, but, but just like are totally not in a position to be able to understand complex uh, issues that might come before them. And so, so one, I guess, is the question of, you know, when you, you know, it was my characterization of how you envision the, the folks in the bodies uh, accurate and, and, and just how do you, 
you know, what, what do you say to that skeptic who's envisioning just a, a, a madhouse um, that is, you know, unlikely to lead to any productive outcomes? Yeah, I mean, so is the question, should we like democracy? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so I think on some level, we've become used to a system where we're basically choosing kind of rich white men, mostly, um, many of whom have backgrounds as lawyers, um, and just ignoring lots of other people, you know, teachers and police officers and nurses and construction workers and social workers and scientists and, you know, disabled people and community college students. But so. also like criminals and neo-Nazis. And, yeah, you know. so it's easy to think of the neo-Nazis, but you know, fortunately, we live in a political community where those people are overwhelmingly under, you know, like outvoted. And um, we might get a couple, sure. Uh, but we also get, you know, many, many, many more people who are themselves black or Hispanic or Muslim American or first generation immigrants. Uh, we get very few of those people at the moment. Um, and I think we get a pretty distorted set of outcomes and really uh, a distortion in what political problems we take on. And I am not at all convinced that the, um, you know, so there's this question of competence, like will people up, be up to the task of making uh, political decisions and following the discussion? And in, in my view, I think there's many different uh, kinds of expertise and background occupational knowledge that we don't bring in at all, right? So very few people with a background in science or technical, medical, anything in politics. Um, so I think we have a lot of like statistical illiteracy at the level of, you know, Congress people who are currently there. Um, and so it's not clear to me we'd do any worse by random selection. I think we might actually improve on that front. Um, but even leaving that aside, I think there's a kind of education that gets valued. Uh, but I think often the distorting incentives of the people actually seeking power over others uh, and the reason they want to be in political office is going to swamp any slight advantage they might have in terms of like, oh, they went to a couple more years of college or they got a law degree, whereas these other people didn't. For a lot of the problems that we're actually looking at, it's not not obvious to me that those uh, that increase in education is going to uh, be more valuable than uh, all the distortion that enters in, uh, both distortion in what people know about, but also in what they are what problems they're concerned to actually address. So, if you had people who were themselves welfare recipients or formerly homeless or uh, you know people you know, struggling as working class. Uh, truck drivers and farm workers um, actually in these political roles, they might be much more motivated to really try to confront some of those problems uh, than the people who actually get elected. Uh, so I think uh, the competence worry, you know, we really need to examine what's the understanding of, uh, you know, competence that we're, we're focused on and why is that the one that we think is the right one to focus on. Um, and so, and of course, there's always worries that if we're in a super racist community and we randomly select people, we're going to get right. a bunch of super racist people. But I think we're not as bad as we can sometimes seem. And that if you actually bring people together and have them interact and talk to each other, we do a lot better than what we see on TV or what we see on online. 
on social media. And I think there's a lot of evidence to that effect. So I talk some about this in the book about the way in which bringing people together from different kinds of backgrounds and having them talk about actual political problems, you get much better discussion, much better engagement across all kinds of lines than what we see, you know, through our electoral system that never really has people bring brings people together in those ways. Um, so I think there's some reason to think that the the kind of worst aspects of polarization and partisanship and even things like racism and sexism are sort of exacerbated by elections. Um, and obviously some of this would go into how do we structure the discussions and deliberation. And, you know, as teachers, I think, you know, we've had to think about those things in the classroom. Um, similar kinds of issues come up in, you know, context of political deliberation, but at least, um, by my lights, I'd be excited to see a much broader range of people, a much truer microcosm uh, come into political decision making. Yeah, it's a it, you know it's a really it's a really interesting it's a really interesting vision. I, there's so many more things that I would be interested to chat with you about on this subject, but um, but we've already been an hour, so um, I think we will probably have to to wrap it up here. Um, you know, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for all the, the thought. It's really, you know, the project's really interesting and you've given, you know, an incredible amount of thought to the kind of the details of how this would, um, you know, how this idea would actually play out. And so um, it's a really, really super interesting project. And, you know, I think at the end of the book, you talk about kind of how we go from here to there. So, you know, we're probably not going to see this happen in Congress next year, but I think the idea that it could happen at the local level or at the state or other kinds of institutions is, is one that is totally, doesn't strike me as totally implausible. And then we can learn something. And if it's attractive, we could, we could go from there. Uh, great. Yeah, no, it's been uh, really fun chatting with you. And uh, yeah, any, any interested listeners can email me and I could uh, send them a manuscript. Uh, <laughs> the, the book itself should be out uh, next year uh, with Oxford University Press. Great. Well, something to look forward to. Uh, thanks very much, Alex. Thank you. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.